Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement mean to them and how they are involved in their communities. This week, we are talking about Indigenous activism, and it's such a powerful conversation, um, especially in light of everything that's happening post-election, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think that there have been points, um, you know, in the past decade, perhaps, where we have seen occasions where we as a nation kind of get to glimpse Indigenous activism. I think everybody probably recalls, right, um, when uh, uh, the pipeline was trying to be put in and there was right, a, a crush of, um, for, for a fairly extended period of time, Indigenous activism around let's not do this right on our sovereign land. But I think that it's also the case that by and large indigenous issues or issues that are important to indigenous communities kind of get forgotten about. Yeah. Um, Rendered invisible basically. Exactly. So we were, we were talking about this too. Like we're currently recording this during um, native American awareness month and awareness seems so I don't know, like for some reason, like that just calling it awareness month doesn't seem significant, but at the same time, so much of the culture, the politics, the social life, the history of indigenous peoples in the United, in what is now the United States has been rendered invisible. Absolutely. And and I think it's interesting the, the spots in which we start to pay attention, right? So w- there's just been a ton of news about the turnout uh, of, of indigenous communities, especially in Arizona, for uh, for this election. And, I, you know, I'm just going to straight read some stats here uh, b- before I move into my, my next point, which is, so Apache, Navajo, and Coconino counties, the three that overlap, right, uh, and, and comprise Navajo Nation, went solidly for Joe Biden uh, with over 73,000 votes, right, compared to 2004 uh, incumbent President Trump. So that's a 97% turnout for Biden, right? Indigenous people in Arizona comprise just about 6% of the population and eligible voters on Navajo Nation alone number about 67,000. What we found were that counties like Apache County, for instance, which overlaps Navajo Nation and also Hopi Tribe, saw 116% voter turnout compared to the 2016 election. So their turnout really did uh, uh, sh- help shift this state and, and eventually what Arizona's um, electoral college votes are going to go to, uh, which was in favor of Biden versus what they voted last time in 2016, which was Trump. And, and that's received incredible attention. What's received a lot less attention is the fact that Navajo Nation has been crushed by the coronavirus. So the fact that they came out in these numbers, despite having just an incredible um, spread of coronavirus because of lack of access to health resources, uh, that's been kind of not, it hasn't even been back burner. It's been completely ignored uh, by, by, I think, Americans at large. Yeah. So whether or not it's activating uh, and organizing around getting out the vote 
or mobilizing and calling attention to sovereign lands um, in South Dakota, for example, Um, or in the case of Minneapolis, Minnesota, organizing around or against police brutality. there There are so many examples of indigenous activism that I think our, our speaker really points to the, the, the richness and the significance of this, this activist movement and these movements that we need to, frankly, be a lot more thoughtful of and aware of and um, in many ways probably supportive of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, so I'm very excited today to, to be able to talk to our guest, uh, Professor Katie Phillips, and to learn more about Indigenous activism. Katrina Phillips, an enrolled member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, is an assistant professor of American Indian History at McAllister College. She earned her BA and PhD in history from the University of Minnesota. Professor Phillips teaches courses on American Indian history and the history of the American West. Her first book, Staging Indigeneity, Salvage Tourism and the Performance of Native American History, is scheduled to come out of the University of North Carolina Press in the spring of 2021. Her next project will look at activism, environmentalism, and tourism on and around Red Cliff. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's awesome to have you. We're really excited to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Excellent. All right. So want to get started by just, I know we just read your bio, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. And yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, I probably should have cut the bio down so I'd actually have something to lead with, but that's okay. We'll make it work. So yeah, I am, um, I'm an enrolled member at Redcliffe, which is about as like, you can't get any farther North in Northern Wisconsin because there's a great lake there. So, uh, that's where, that's where my reservation is along the South shore of Lake Superior. And I grew up about like an hour and a half Southwest of the reservation in Northern Wisconsin. And yeah, just kind of a about as small town of a small town kid as as you could get. I went to the University of Minnesota for my undergrad and my PhD and now I'm teaching at McAllister College. My husband and I have two kids and two dogs and we're just kind of doing our thing, taking it one day at a time and you know, I'm teaching and doing my research and things like that, but yeah, it's just been um it's been a, a fun ride and I'm, yeah, I'm just really happy to talk with you guys today. We're so glad to hear you. And and, and I've read several of the, uh, I guess you call pop media, right? Pieces that you've written for, uh, you know, Washington Post and other places, but you've spoken quite a bit in those about uh, indigenous activism, which was a term that I hadn't actually heard before. Um, and, and in particular, you highlighted a lot of the history of the American Indian movement. Can you talk to us about the history of the American Indian movement and, and what indigenous activism is? Sure. And so when we're one of the hard things about being a historian of like American Indian history is you never know like where to start your story because you need to do like so much historical context and stuff. But I'm going to start in the middle of the 20th century. You're welcome. And I'm starting there and not like <laughs> centuries earlier. Otherwise, we'd be here for a long time. But 
So when you get to the middle of the 20th century, this is when federal Indian policy turns towards policies of assimilation. And, you know, that's, I also don't want to say that, you know, urban spaces at this time already had like really significant native populations. But in the 1950s, federal Indian policy shifts from kind of the tribal revitalization efforts that started in the 1930s. And they move towards these two policies that are called termination and relocation. And termination came into being under the 1954 House Concurrent Resolution 108, which is a super innocuous name, like given what the policy actually did. And then relocation came about through the 1956 Indian Relocation Act. And termination is as ominous as it sounds. Like when I teach termination, I literally use like a picture of Arnold Schwarzenegger as the terminator because termination was meant to sever the treaty guaranteed relationship between more than a hundred native nations and the federal government. It was meant to eradicate tribal sovereignty and dissolve reservations. And this would effectively strip over, I think it's about 12,000 native people of their tribal birthrights. So you have termination on one hand, and then you have relocation, which is where the federal government, again, this is kind of this final push towards assimilation by moving them off reservations into larger cities like Denver, Chicago, and the Bay Area. And by doing so, this would ideally for the government cut social, cultural, and political ties to reservations. And so Minneapolis wasn't technically an official relocation city, but it had a relocation office and effectively became like a de facto destination in the 1950s and 60s. And those who relocated to larger cities were promised jobs, they were promised housing, but probably comes as no surprise, they found you know really inadequate living situations and a lack of employment opportunities. And a couple scholars who have written about this, Paul Chott Smith and Robert Warrior, have shown that the Twin Cities had native populations that were large enough to register on the radar of city government, the press, and the public. But this visibility comes at a cost because native people in Minneapolis, like African Americans, became targets of police violence because of the city's deeply entrenched racism. And at the same time, this led to the formation of urban Indian communities and how we get to AIM, the American Indian Movement, is in the summer of 1968, Minneapolis Indians start organizing against this ongoing discrimination and racism and police brutality and civil rights violations. And this is actually a year after African Americans in the city start to organize because of those exact same things. And an oft-repeated story that um, about how AIM got their name is that Their first choice was something like Concerned Indian Americans, but the acronym is CIA, (laughs) and it was was already taken. And so an elder recommended the American Indian Movement, and that's the name that stuck. That's that's really interesting. Um, I mean, as our listeners know, I'm from the Southwest, so I I have 
like uh, my entire life growing up around, you know, Native American, uh, you know, communities and, and being on reservations there that I've not heard of that. Is this something that was specifically started in the Minneapolis area? So AIM itself started in Minneapolis, but to your broader question about kind of indigenous activism, AIM kind of is the first thing that people think about when they think about indigenous activism because they had a really public presence. You know, they started in Minneapolis, but, you know, chapters popped up all across the country and their activism kind of became national and even international in a lot of instances. But indigenous activism takes a lot of different forms. And I mean, in some instances you can kind of trace indigenous activism back to, you know, the early 1900s when you have the creation of the Society of American Indians, which was a collection of, you know, lawyers and educators and ministers and doctors who are all coming together to advocate for indigenous issues. And, you know, you can kind of see that through, you know, the mid 20th century and you see it, you know, kind of coalescing after kind of after World War II, when you start to see a lot of instances of Native nations literally across the country coming together to advocate for the ability, right, to exercise their treaty guaranteed rights to hunt and fish and trap and gather and things like that. You know, if you're thinking about indigenous activism, you have the protests against pipelines, you have protests against mascots. And so, yeah, I think activism for a lot of people kind of sounds like a dirty word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. I mean, in a, in a sense, it kind of feels like if you're going to survive as a native person in the U S you like have to be an activist. So how has indigenous activism coincided with the black lives matter movement, especially, I mean, you're, you're talking about this in the context of Minneapolis um, during the protests there um, after the murder of George Floyd. What is, what is kind of that story? So I think it's one of those things where there are a lot of shared experiences between indigenous activists and the BLM movement, particularly if we think about these shared histories of erasure and exploitation. And, you know, I was scrolling through Facebook after George Floyd's murder, and I saw a lot of photos posted from those early protests where there was a really, a very visible native presence. And it makes a lot of sense when you kind of start to put the pieces together. And, you know, as I talked about earlier, and that's kind of what pushed me to write that piece for the Washington Post was, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and elsewhere, you know, not only do we see these long histories of hostilities against Indigenous people and people of color, but also that kind of collective history of weaponized state violence. And, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, in 2017, a study by Nicole Busker, Marina Gorsuch, and Deborah Rowe showed that American Indian women 
were stopped, searched, and arrested at higher rates than women from any other demographic in the city of Minneapolis. Wow. I, that's, I guess, I don't know why that's shocking to me, but that, that's disturbing. That's disturbing at so many levels, uh, especially given that, you know, Native American women are so much more prone to domestic violence where they don't get help, right, from, from the police systems that we have, that they're also then targets of that same system. It, it's really disturbing. So, so I, I know that, you know, you've written about, and, and, I, and I've read a few pieces that you've wrote, you've written too, but that uh, indigenous activism more broadly, but, but AIM specifically has actually a pretty wide presence in the Midwest. We're in Northeast Ohio, obviously. Cleveland is, <laughs> is uh, no history to racism, you know, surrounding portrayals of Native American peoples and, uh, you know, especially with our, um, our baseball team. Um, and I'm, so I guess I'm curious about, is there indigenous activism that's occurred kind of in this area that maybe isn't as well known anymore? I mean, there, there, we don't have right, reservations uh, uh, in this area. And I, and I think that there's probably a disconnect for a lot of Northeastern Ohio uh, folks about what that, what that indigenous ind- indigeneity means and what activism around problems might look like. Yeah, and that's that is such a good question because you're right. I mean, there are no federally recognized Native nations in Ohio today, because most were forced to leave Ohio during the 1800s. You know, in the wake of the War of 1812, when you look at Tecumseh and his movement, and you know, the forced removal of the Shawnee, and the era of Indian removal in that started kind of in the 1830s with the Indian Removal Act. I mean. That's that's such a big part of it, because without kind of that recognition and that like tangible, in a sense, land base. Right. I think that plays a huge role in how Native nations and activists and community organizations work and how much recognition they get. And, you know, AIM became like I said, AIM became a national movement and there's been a Cleveland chapter of Ames since the early 1970s. They s- first sued Cleveland baseball in 1972 to try to change the name and abolish the mascot. And also when I was doing some research on them, according to their website, they've protested or demonstrated at every home opener for the Cleveland baseball team since 1973. What? I had no idea. Wow. Persistence. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> showing up and doing it. I'm going to join that. I had no idea. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. See what happens? You do some research, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, and I there's, um, there's also an organization called the Greater Cincinnati Native American Coalition. Okay. And, you know, I, I know you're in a different part of the state, but you know, they also focus on education and restoration and advocacy. And I'm sure there are, are more groups, but just kind of when I was doing some research ahead of this, those were the first two that kind of came to mind. So it, it was a little bit striking to me moving here from a place where, I mean, Native Americans are so present in Arizona, uh, it just right that, that they're a, a fabric of that state. And to move to a state where they're almost invisible, except right? <laughs> with this, with this awful symbol, 
Um, and that that's, that's the connection that Ohioans or our Clevelanders maybe more, more specifically have was, was really uh, surprising to me given the history of Native Americans in Ohio. So one of the, I, I, I was uh, made aware that you were recently appointed to serve on the advisory board for Monument Labs National Monument Audit. Um, so for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the organization and what an audit is? <laughs> like, what, a, what is this thing that you're doing? What is happening? Really cool? <laughs> and I, I'm really intrigued. <laughs> So Monument Lab is based in Philadelphia, and they're a collective that centers both public art and history. So they work with artists and activists and, you know, cultural institutions and municipal agencies and so on in order to try and better understand public engagement and collective memory and also how we can kind of shift that conversation and I'm, I'm really excited to be part of the advisory board for this project. And, you know, they got, they're part of this just huge melon-funded grant that's going to be, I think it's like a five-year grant. But yeah, it's just, it's going to be phenomenal because the, the goal of this audit is to take a really critical look not just at a couple monuments here and there, because, you know, we've seen a lot recently about how Columbus statues have come down. You know, the one in St. Paul came down and ones across the country. You have, you know, the statue of Oñate that came down. You have, you know, the statue to Lee that's become kind of reimagined as this canvas, right? And so I think what this project is going to do is to really help clarify the landscape of monuments across the United States. And, you know, we've, we've had some conversations, you know, just trying to think about, you know, what is a monument and, you know, what does it mean and what do monuments stand for and who do they represent? But also on the flip side, who do they not represent? I mean, you hear a lot of from people uh, uh, <laughs> saying, well, you have to keep the monuments, their history. How else will we know history? As though anyone's ever gone to a Confederate statue and gone, oh my gosh, I'm just imbued with all this history all of a sudden. Um, but but there's, but it's really telling one part or maybe a lopsided part of history. So why is it actually important for history to rethink monuments in this way? Well, and I, I think that's a great question because Again, like you said, you know, after when all of this conversation started happening, a lot of my historian friends who are way funnier than I am were like, dang, if I'd have known this, like, instead of assigning my students books, we just go stare at some monuments. Um, we don't right, have yeah. to teach anymore. Like, just go stare at a monument. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's that's a big part of it. And I had the chance to moderate a series for the Minnesota Historical Society on shared spaces and public places. And again, that's in the wake of everything that's happening in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, you know, in the Twin Cities here. And just really thinking about, you know, if you look at when a lot of these monuments go up, like you go and you see a giant statue and you think, man, this, this has to have been here for like forever. 
but you know, the Columbus statue in St. Paul, and I'm referring to that one because I know more about that one given my location, (laughs) but I mean, that one went up in 1931. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even a hundred years. Not even a hundred years. And it, you know, it tells you, I think monuments tell us more about the era in which they go up. Yeah. Instead of the era that they're purporting to tell us about. Yeah. Yeah. So you're involved in a lot of things. You're, you know, you're part of Monument Labs National Monument Audit or the advisor board. You're, you know, you're doing your research, you're teaching. Um, What keeps you motivated to keep doing this work? Oh, this is such a good question. And this is going to be such a corny answer. Um, But I think it's a combination both of like wanting, like everybody wants to make the world a better place for their kids, right? But it's like, you know, my husband's white, I'm native, we're raising these like two little boys and just like the thought of them like never having to encounter like a racist football team name or, you know, and also thinking about, you know, like my mom and my grandma and wanting to kind of show like this, this legacy. Right. Cause it's like, you know, my mom makes fun of me all the time because I'm always like, mom, I don't ever like think of myself as an, as an activist. And it's, but it's always after I call her because I've like, you know, been asked to do something where it's like, I go read books at my kid's school. And, you know, my seven-year-old then like tells his entire class that like Columbus didn't discover America when they're, when his teacher is talking about indigenous people's day. And, you know, thinking back to what I said before, you know, like, I think part of it is, because I feel like education is so important and native history is, it's never taught anywhere. And so, you know, for people to want to take action and to do something, you have to know that there's an issue. And I also like to talk a lot. So I feel like that kind of, sometimes it gets me in trouble, but usually it's good. That's, it's, it's always a good thing, I think, right, Ashley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, so now in the Growing Democracy Project, we're particularly interested in the power of civic and political engagement. And I know maybe you don't always think of yourself as, as spearheading, right, political and civic engagement, but I think your mom's right. I think you absolutely do by by being seen, by being loud, by being uh, present and being willing to bring issues out there. From your perspective, why is doing that important? Why is it important to be civically and politically engaged in, in our communities? I think it's about seeing issues and seeing problems and wanting to find solutions for them. And, you know, when I was growing up, this idea of being, you know, civically and politically engaged is honestly kind of new to me. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> well, you're definitely not alone, right? Like so many people feel that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and actually, I mean, that's a great point because thinking about, 
you know, and again, whether it's, I try not to get bogged down in the conversations where it's like, you know, aren't there better issues than like fighting against the name of a football team or a baseball (laughs) team? But it's like, there are studies that have shown like the negative effects of, you know, of native mascots, of this lack of attention, right? When you, when you think about like the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, like, so that year, 2016, that was the first time I had students coming into my classroom with an inkling of an understanding of Indigenous mm-hmm. issues. Interesting, interesting. That it took that big of, of an issue for them to come in and see that as problematic. Mm-hmm. Especially given that, I mean, the issues with the mascots is, is so widespread and seems like it's something that's so easy to take care of. You just <laughs> don't have that mascot, right? <laughs> but that it took something really, really massive for them to come to you. Interesting. How can folks support Indigenous communities, right? So you just mentioned that it was in 2016 that people are, are that they had a, in many ways, a consciousness raising, a, a recognition that there is this, there are things happening. I haven't, it's been, the histories have been erased. I haven't been taught things. I just didn't know there were things happening. From your perspective as someone who's in this space, educating in this space, researching in this space, how can folks support Indigenous communities, whether it's activists, organizers, um, throughout the country, and not have to wait till another 2016, where we have (laughs) another moment where we're like, oh yeah, we're supposed to think about these things. Yeah, being like, oh man, I missed that. (laughs) But... I mean, this is this is one of my favorite questions, and it's one that I, I get asked um, a fair amount. But there are, I mean, there's definitely a lot of different things people can do, and a lot of them are really easy. You know, finding folks to follow on social media as a way to start, and then amplifying their voices. And, you know, if you have the means to donate to organizations, do that. You know, there are um, there are so many great books to read, right? Whether you're into, you know, if you really like fiction, read some Louise Erdrich. If you want to read history, like there are so many phenomenal people in, you know, history, American studies, you know, environmental studies. There are, you know, there's just so much material out there. And, you know, a lot of kind of a, a shift in the, in the field, I would say, is one that's kind of turning towards not just having conversations with other people in academia, but also making this material more accessible for people who, like, aren't professors, who aren't in classes and things like that. And, you know, I was asked, I actually got an email from a McAllister alum who is part of a congregation in the Twin Cities area, you know, just looking for some books and recommendations and things like that. And now it's gotten to the point where they've built a coalition of like four churches that are coming together to work on, you know, like anti-racism training and to learn about indigenous history, like here in Minnesota. And, you know, they're going to have discussion groups and, you know, get people together to read books and then talk about them. And, you know, it's, all it takes is a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of money, but I mean, it's, I, I think it's really incredible that 
people are so excited about this and are willing to kind of step outside of their comfort zone and say like, okay, I know I need to know more about this. I know I need to support people. What do I do and how do I do it? Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. And a plug for your book. Folks should get it when it's out because you were here in Chilcote talking about issues in, in Ohio. So plug, plug for Katie's book. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Any words of wisdom for our listeners? And I should also uh, do a shout out. There are, we have listeners not just in Northeast Ohio, but actually across the U.S. and even some across the pond in uh, U.K., Belgium. I know. It's crazy. So any any words of wisdom, anything that people should take away that uh, when they're thinking about, um, you know, indigenous activism and how they can kind of motivate uh, uh, issues that are important to indigenous communities? Okay. I feel like if I had to end with words of wisdom, it would be just a reminder that Native nations are sovereign nations with the right and the ability to self-govern. And that that I, idea of sovereignty is so crucial to how we understa- understand ourselves as distinct nations should be one of kind of the guiding principles of all of this. And not to drop like the big sovereignty bomb, like right at the end, but I mean that it's literally like the foundation of native nationhood and that when, whether we're talking about, you know, fishing rights, when we're talking about pipelines, when we're talking about, you know, all of these different things, like sovereignty is what undergirds all of that. And understanding and recognizing that is going to be key to helping move these, these goals and these ideas forward. Yeah. And, you know, maybe some people don't know that while in, there is individual sovereignty, there, there's also larger governing bodies where each one comes together, right, as a whole and makes decisions. So, um, yeah, I think it would be great if people could uh, could learn a little bit more about that. Thank you so much for joining us, Katie. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Coming up in the next few months, we'll have conversations about Cleveland's voter turnout efforts and technology as tools of activism.